This morning, we're going to be in John chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, you can open to John chapter 18. I'll invite you to prepare your hearts to hear, to receive from the Lord, from the word of the Lord this morning. And I'll invite Heather to come up for our scripture reading. Good morning. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Amen. Thank you, Heather. Good morning, church family. How are, how are you doing? You guys good? Uh, I'm doing okay. Uh, usually I try to stand out front and shake hands and stuff, but I avoided that today because I came down with a bit of a cold, so... As an act of love, I stayed away from you. Uh, don't interpret that as anything other than love. But also, uh, I'm on some pretty powerful cold medication right now, so this could be really fun. Uh, especially considering that the context of this passage is very political. Uh, this idea of Jesus' kingdom not being of the world. So just fair warning right now, trigger warning right now for all of you. We're going to talk about politics and Jesus, and I'm on cold medicine. So why don't we pray before we do anything else, okay? Heavenly Father, we need your grace. We we always, always need your grace. And there are some times where we're just more aware of it than others. And for me personally, I'm more aware of it. God, for others here today, maybe they're struggling or feeling the pressure of life in some ways. And so I just pray we would come to you boldly to receive of your grace to drink deeply of that living water that we sang about a few minutes ago. And Jesus, I pray that you'd help me to be clear and to be helpful and to be truthful with my speech, that everything I teach and everything I say would be truthful and would be honoring to you and and helpful to all of us. And God, I pray specifically that you would help us not, not only to have soft and receptive hearts, but to have minds that can think clearly and can analyze, uh, what it is that you say and what it is that you want for us as we, Dive into this passage today. Uh, Jesus, there's a lot of, there are a lot of powers. There are a lot of institutions that are competing for our allegiance and our attention. And my prayer today is simply, Lord Jesus, would you grab a hold of our attention? And would our primary allegiance always be to you, our crucified and resurrected King? It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we are going to talk about politics, and, and for some of you, depending on your background, you know, church and politics, you're thinking to yourself, uh-oh, uh, uh, I know how this goes, you know, pretty soon the flag, we're going to bring the flag in, and we're going to post it up here, and we're going to do God Bless America as our communion song, and at some point, bald eagles are going to be released into the congregation, and 21-gun salute. Some of you are like, that sounds awesome, let's do it. And others of you are like, I will get up and walk out of here. We could potentially be very divided by politics. And so my hope and my prayer today 
is to help us to really think, you know, when I use the word politics and, and when we talk about politics in the Bible, I'm not necessarily talking about how we do politics in the United States of America. I'm not trying to fit us neatly into one category or the other, a two-party system or, you know, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, Marxist, capitalist. I want us to think about the idea of powers and and principalities and authority structures and institutions. This is going to be a little bit challenging for me to communicate and for you to really kind of grasp what I'm saying. But what's really been surprising as we've gone through the Gospel of John, I did not expect John to really be as political as it has ended up being. If we were doing the gospel of Matthew, Matthew uses the word kingdom 55 times in his gospel. It's very political. Jesus is the king. Caesar is not. Herod is not. Like it's a really political book. John is a little bit more sneaky. He only uses the word kingdom five times. I think actually three of them are in this passage. But this idea of politics and how humans, how we organize ourselves into groups and institutions and how we exercise authority and power. And then Jesus shows up with this really famous line, my kingdom is not of this world. And so we have to wrestle with what what Jesus says here. I, I just want you to know that Jesus, in case you missed it, He claims to be the rightful king and the rightful ruler over everything that is. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And when he says that his kingdom is not of this world, that doesn't mean that it's some other planet or some other dimension that has nothing to do with this world. What he is saying is I'm king over this whole world and everything that we interact with as human beings should rightfully be under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. So so today, what I hope to convey to you is this idea. Like Jesus, Christians are not of the world, but we are for the world. Not of the world, but we are for the world. And and so I'm I'm just going to kind of walk us through this story. This is an amazing story. I I really, um, man, it's just an incredible story peek behind the curtain, this conversation between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, who, by the way, isn't it amazing that the Apostles' Creed, one of the most ancient historic creeds of the Christian church, there's only a few people mentioned by name. You know, Jesus, he was born of the Virgin Mary, and that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pilate was named specifically in the Apostles' Creed. Why not, why not, you know, King Herod? Or why not the Jewish leaders? Or Caiaphas? Or Annas? Or why not, you know, he raised Lazarus from the dead? Why, why is only Pilate mentioned by name? I don't know. You can chew on that. You were expecting a response? I think it has something to do Let me, let me get back to my notes. All right. If you have your Bible, we're going to pick up in verse uh, 28 of chapter 18. Then they, these are the Jewish religious leaders, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, to the governor's headquarters. The Roman government uh, used to, when Jesus was born, King Herod was the one who was ruling over Judea over Israel, but later in, a Je- in Jesus' adult life, 
they put in these regional governors. They didn't want to let the Jewish kings uh, rule over the region anymore. They wanted their people in management. So the Jewish leaders, they take Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. According to the kind of the timetable of the ancient Near Eastern world, this means somewhere in the 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. window. Multiple scholars would tell us that Roman officials would often start their workday around 3 a.m. That way they could be done by about 10 a.m. and just get to partying for the rest of the day, the Roman way. So early morning, but they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. This is Passover. Jesus and his disciples celebrated it the night before, but there's a whole week of festivities attached to the Passover. And so these religious leaders didn't want to go into the house of a Gentile, specifically a a Roman official, so that they wouldn't be defiled. By the way, that is nowhere in the Bible. There are laws about clean and unclean, about, you know, eating and not eating and don't touch. But, but this is superstition and extra biblical rules that have come up that have made it so that the Jewish leaders themselves will not go into the house of Pontius Pilate, but they're happy to send Jesus in there, which is remarkable in the providence of God because it means that Jesus and Pilate can kind of have this conversation away from the accusations and the listening ears of these religious leaders. Now, quick question, who is Pilate? Just so we understand, the, 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 the Gospels, all four Gospels mention Pontius Pilate, but they don't give us a ton of information about him. If you want to learn more about the history of Pontius Pilate, you need to consult some other sources, early historians like Josephus and Philo. We find from them that he was appointed to rule Judea roughly AD 26, and he was in charge of Judea for about 10 years. And pretty much every historical source that we have says that Pilate hated his job. He really hated it. He didn't want to be there. Gary Burge, who's a scholar, he says this, he, Pilate, was a brutal ruler whose atrocities against the Jews were legendary. As a member of Rome's lower nobility, he was always aware of his vulnerabilities and so controlled Judea harshly with an eye on the pleasure of his masters in Rome. Judea was a strategic spot because they they, they needed to pass through there to get down into Africa. Africa is where, you know, places like Egypt had food stores and there's spices and there's animals and you need to get through there. So you need to keep Judea under control. But here's the thing. If you study the history of the people of of Israel in that region, they were not easy to control people. Read the the, the books of Maccabees and some of the intertestamental history. And and, and like even when Pontius Pilate, I read an account when, when Pilate first showed up, one of the first things he did was he set up a huge statue of the emperor in Jerusalem. And the people of Jerusalem were so mad about it that the men literally staged a sit in that they, like hundreds, thousands of them, surrounded this statue and they just sat there without food, water, or bathroom breaks for five days. And Pilate was so irritated. Like, these are the most stubborn people I've ever dealt with in my life. He said, if you don't move, I'm going to cut your heads off. To which all of the men laid down on the ground and stretched their necks out and said, go ahead. So he said, okay, fine, get rid of the statue. There's other stories about where he set up, you know, coats of arms and shields in the temple and, and they protested again and he killed some of them. But then word got back to the emperor in Rome who wrote a letter and said, Pilate, 
chill out, just quit defiling their place of worship or we'll remove you. And so you got to imagine Pilate here, he, he hates his job. He hates the Jewish people, but he is terrified of getting in trouble from his superiors in the Roman government. I think that provides some context for why he's so wishy-washy and waffling in this passage. Why doesn't he just crucify Jesus? What's the big deal? I think some of that historical information provides his context for his hesitancy to act. So verse 29, Pilate went outside to them. Again, this in and out and in and out. Jesus and Pilate are inside. The Jewish leaders are outside. Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Let me, let me translate that. What, what's he accused of? Oh, trust us. Bad stuff. Okay, well then, Pilate says, just take him and judge him by your own law. If it's bad stuff, like you guys go deal with it. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Oh, there's their motivation. And then John gives us this little insight This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You guys remember through the story of of Jesus' earthly ministry, there were times where they tried to kill him, right? They were going to do kind of a mob violence thing, pick up rocks and and throw stones at him until he would would die. They're saying, we, (laughs) this is my paraphrase, but they're basically saying, we're having a really hard time killing this guy. And we know that if there's anything you Romans are good at, it's killing people. We could use some help. That's what's happening at a human level and from a human perspective. But John wants us to know that it is not just from a human perspective that things are working out this way. Jesus himself made some predictions about how he was going to die And here in the sovereignty and the providence of God Almighty, the plan from before the foundations of the earth is coming into being. You might remember back in John 3, Jesus, when he was talking with Nicodemus, he says that that he was going to be lifted up. The way that Moses took that that bronze serpent and, and lifted it up in front of the people so that all the people who had been bitten by the snakes could look at the serpent and, and have the poison that was infecting them be cured, that, that he's going to be lifted up in that sort of a way. And in John chapter 12, Jesus also said it again. He said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And back then, John even told us he was saying these things so that we would have a clue about the way that Jesus is going to die. Jesus is not going to be, uh, uh, you know, stabbed in the back with a sword. Jesus is not going to be put to death by, by stoning and having people throw rocks at him. There is a lifting up that needs to take place. That before crucifixion was ever invented, before the Roman Empire ever came into being, that God had a plan to have his son die in a particular way. And there's even clues littered throughout the pages of of the Hebrew scriptures. You go all the way back into Deuteronomy, thousands of years before Jesus was ever physically born on on this earth. And and, and God put these, these little clues, like some of those archaic laws and those things that we read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, like what is, what is going on there? But for example, one verse says, don't leave a dead body hanging overnight for 
Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. They're cursed by God. That, that of all the ways to die, being hung up, lifted up, is a sign and a symbol that this one is cursed by God. Jesus isn't going to die in any other way other than being lifted up and hung on a tree so that we could know that he bore our curse. The apostle Paul tells us that in Galatians chapter three, that when we look upon the cross of Jesus Christ, we we look upon it, that, that God was doing something on purpose, that Jesus was lifted up in this way so that we could know that Jesus took our curse for us. Each and every single one of us, because of our sinfulness, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the curse of God. But God in love sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life that we've never lived and to die in a specific way, lifted up, hung on a tree. And when we look at the ugliness of the cross, we can say, praise God that Jesus took my curse. And in return, you and I who have trusted in Jesus receive mercy and grace and forgiveness and all of the blessings and the richness that heaven has. That's what we get. Isn't that good news to you? So, 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 so John says that, that this whole thing is going down. It's not just that the religious leaders can't figure out how to kill Jesus. They are bumbling and stumbling and falling into God's eternal plan that was laid out before the foundations of the world. We, we talk about the cross. I had somebody once a few months ago say to me, man, why do we talk about the cross so much? What's, what's the deal? Friends, we talk about the cross because it shows us the ugliness of our sin, but even more so, the greatness of God's mercy and grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again. Pilate's getting his steps in. Uh, Hope he had his Fitbit on or whatever they had back then. And he called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now that's a silly question, isn't it? Here's this poor itinerant Jewish rabbi with a grand total of one follower left at this time of the night. John. Even Peter's gone at this point. Are you the king of the Jews? How's your, how's your revolution going? Right? Um, you know, this is the, maybe this is a little bit too on the nose, but this is the guy who's running for political office. And on the day of the election, he's standing out with his campaign sign at the corner of the road, waving his campaign sign around by himself. Only, only him. Like, wow, he's obviously got the masses following. Like, it's just a silly question. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, this is great. I I love this. You guys, I love this. Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? (laughs) Let me answer your question with a question. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Like you see the frustration in his voice. Like, do I have any idea what any of you guys are arguing about? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Like, what are we even talking about here? I love that because Jesus here is frustrating and confusing this earthly political leader. Like, he's he's the Roman governor. He's supposed to rule over it. What have you done? What are we even talking about? And Jesus answered, my, my kingdom 
is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. And I just insert a little parenthesis there, like, ignore Peter. He's an idiot. Like, I know he pulled out his sword and all that, but I shut him down. Like, my servants, we're not, we're not doing things the, the way that you're used to seeing. Jesus, by the way, is not the only Messiah from this time period. There are at least, depending on, you know, the historians that you read and whatnot, you know, probably eight to 10 to 12 different would-be Jewish messiahs, different Jewish kings who were there for one reason and one reason only, to grab soldiers, to get swords, to storm the castle, as it were, and to get rid of Roman rule and authority. Jesus said, no, we're, we're doing things a different way. If, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. If you were here a couple months ago, I did a teaching on the subject of the world because that phrase comes up time and time again in the Gospel of John, particularly in that upper room section. And I, I said that the Bible uses the, the term, the cosmos or the world, kind of three different ways. It can refer to the planet, the physical creation. It can refer to people, particularly those who have rejected Jesus. And it can also refer to powers or politics or authority structures. And so here Jesus is is referring to his kingdom, but he says, my kingdom is just different than what you're used to seeing. Dear Pontius Pilate, dear Roman government official, you're used to seeing politics lived out in a certain way. You're used to seeing transfer of power come through physical violence. And I'm here to tell you, a transfer of power is taking place. It's just a lot different than you think. Is Jesus saying, my kingdom is only spiritual and has nothing to do with the world? Is that what he's saying? Oh, my my kingdom is a kingdom that lives in your hearts and all you governments and officials have nothing to worry about. This is just a a spiritual kingdom in the hearts and the minds of my followers. Is that what Jesus is saying? Not at all. Not at all. But what he is saying is my kingdom has a different source and my kingdom operates according to a different set of values and ethics than what you are used to seeing. Let me ask you, Sound City, is Jesus political? He is. Now, is it political in the way that we're used to practicing politics? I don't think so. Let me, let me make it even more pointed. Is Jesus dangerous? Yes. If you've never met Jesus, fair warning, he's going to mess with stuff in your life. He's really going to want to like, I don't know, turn things upside down and completely change who you are from the inside out. And as we're human beings... We live and we interact with systems of authority and and institutions, not just governments, but our workplaces or our schools or our neighborhoods. Jesus' kingdom is going to mess with the kingdoms and the institutions of the world, just not in the way that we tend to do it as human beings. Verse 37, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, hello, you say that I'm a king. One scholar I read said that, you know, you could translate this, that's your word, not mine. In the, in the new Aaron Gray revised standard, it's, I know you are, but what am I? Like, it's that kind of a thing. So you're a king? Yeah, you, you, could, you could say that if you want. 
But here's my manifesto. Here's the purpose. This is the whole reason, the purpose that I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. All the way back in John chapter one says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Jesus stood up and declared, I am the way, the truth. So Pilate says to him, what is truth? Now, for the Romans, truth is whatever Caesar says. But Jesus comes and says, no, I am the truth. I have all the truth about God, about the world, about mankind, about the plan of redemption. I I am truth. And then Pilate says, well, what is truth? And it's kind of interesting to think, like, what's the tone of voice that Pilate says this with? Is Pilate going, Jesus, like, what is truth? Will you please teach me and enlighten me? And I, I would like to have an extended discussion and understanding about what is truth. Verse 38 continues. After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews. So like, it's probably a little more cynical. What is truth? What is truth? Oh, you got a claim to the truth? So now he's walking back out again, in and out. He went back outside to the Jews and told them, I, I find no guilt in him. Isn't that interesting? Pilate finds no guilt. Jesus is not guilty of breaking any Roman laws. Hold on to that. I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And you gotta, you gotta know Pilate's doing that on purpose just to make him mad. Oh, you're, you're king? You're the Jewish people? You want me to release your king to you? And they're mad and they cry out again. No, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. And robber here, if you, depending on your translation, you might have a little footnote or a little comment. The New English translation commentary says this. It's possible that Barabbas was merely a robber or a highwayman, but more likely, given the use of the term lestes in Josephus and other early sources, it's more likely that he was a guerrilla warrior or a revolutionary leader. The word lestes was used a number of times by Josephus to describe the revolutionaries or guerrilla fighters who, from mixed motives of nationalism and greed, kept the rural districts of Judea in constant turmoil. Here's the irony. The religious leaders are so blinded by rage that the one who poses no actual threat to safety is going to be condemned to die while they ask for someone who does actually pose a threat to public safety to be released. That's irony. John is full of irony that way. Is Jesus dangerous? Yeah, not in that way. Is Barabbas dangerous? Yeah, you better believe it. Let's continue a few verses into chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. I learned something this week. Maybe you know this. This was something I had never really kind of thought clearly about until this week and doing some reading and some studying. When you look at this, this flogging here in John, this is early. He's still with Pilate. He's still there. He has not yet gone. There, there's in Mark and, and the other gospels that talk about a scourging that took place. And I didn't realize that there's two different terms that are used. It's two different words in the Greek. And I, I'm, I think I, I've become convinced this week that there's actually two different 
beatings of Jesus that took place. Gary Burge, again, the scholar, he says, Roman law recognized three types of flogging. And if you know Latin, my apologies right now, but fustigatio, flagellatio, and verberatio, each representing ascending levels of severity. Although it's uncertain if the gospel's original readers would have understood these differences. The lowest form was reserved for troublemakers who simply needed to be punished and warned. It's like, let's give them a good beating, and that's their warning, and then we send them back out. But the third level was the most severe and served as part of the capital sentence, generally as a preparation for crucifixion. No doubt when Jesus is prepared for crucifixion in Mark 15, this severe beating is what Mark had in mind. In the present scene, Pilate chooses to employ fustigatio, a beating not only to teach Jesus to be more prudent in the future, but to satisfy the crowds who are demanding his death. Interesting thing to kind of think about. This is the equivalent of being let off with a warning. Granted, the Romans are a little more extreme with their warnings than we are in our culture, in our society, but it's, it's still interesting to think that Jesus was not found guilty of breaking any Roman laws. They're going to give him a warning, hey, stop instigating, you know, stop making your own people so upset, but we'll just give you a beating and let you go. Back to the text, verse 2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown, a crown of thorns, and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Again, culturally quite different. What an interesting way to show that he's not guilty. We'll beat him. We'll stab sharp thorns into his brow. We'll mock him, dress him up in a purple robe. But he's not guilty of anything. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. I want us to behold the man Jesus in a moment. But for right now, let's behold the man Pilate. In contrast, J.C. Ryle, an old Puritan preacher, says, we see here this Roman governor, a man of, of rank and high position, an imperial representative of the most powerful nation on earth, the most powerful nation on earth, a man who ought to have been the fountain of justice and equity, halting between two opinions in a case as clear as the sun at noonday. There's no, there's no, there's no disagreement here. Jesus is innocent. Pilate said it multiple times. We see him knowing what is right and yet afraid to act up to his knowledge. He's convinced in his own conscience that he ought to acquit the prisoner before him and yet he's afraid to do it lest he should displease his accusers. Never perhaps did human nature make such a contemptible exhibition. Never was there a name so justly handed down to a world's scorn as the name which is embalmed in all our creeds, the name of Pontius Pilate. There's something interesting. I want to share a few thoughts here. Um, Interesting about this, this whole dynamic between Jesus, the king, and the kingdom, and Pontius, the governor, and the rules, and the laws, and all of this stuff is very political. And there's kind of an important 
thing that we need to recognize right from the outset, and it's, it's, it's this. Every earthly institution is a mixture of good and bad. Because every human being is a mixture of good and bad. So all of the institutions we, we, we run up against, the Roman Empire, you know, we're, we're using the Roman Empire as, as an example of bad here, right? But, but did you even hear in that J.C. Ryle like the Roman Empire had a pretty extensive system of laws. And actually some of them were really quite good. And there's appeals and there's, there's justice. Like, you know, uh, they were not a pure despotism, maybe not quite at this point. They became more and more over the years. But like Rome had some good laws, the foundations for some of the laws that we still enjoy today as Americans. Rome did things like built incredible, I think it's like 50,000 miles worth of roads around the world. Like that's a good thing, right? It's particularly good because after Jesus rose from the dead, his followers were able to quickly get throughout the entire Roman world and be like, hey guys, the craziest thing happened. Rome obviously stands as this picture of of, of evil and, and warped and twistedness, but There's some good things about Rome. And even according to their own laws, Jesus didn't do anything wrong. I was thinking about this um, week before last, I volunteered at my my kiddo's school and they, they had an assembly, which means my job was to sit with a bunch of kindergartners and keep them, you know, less kindergarten-y. And so we had the assembly and everybody stands up and they, they do the Pledge of Allegiance. And it had been a while since I had done the Pledge of Allegiance and I hadn't heard it in a good while. And, and so I, I didn't actually say the Pledge of Allegiance because I was just in my head thinking about the words and uh, the line and liberty and justice for all. That one just stuck with me. I just sat there thinking about it and kindergartners started like, you know, wiping boogers on each other and everything. I'm just thinking about liberty and justice. And worst volunteer ever. Uh, I was thinking about that line, like, let me ask you, in the United States of America, are there some incredible things about liberty and about justice? Do we have maybe unprecedented in the history of the world, or at least in comparison to some of our totalitarian world neighbors, like, do we have unbelievable amounts of liberty and justice? Are there some horrific things in the history of the United States of America? Some just horrific injustices, these people of African descent being enslaved for centuries and the Jim Crow laws that even after slavery was repealed that, that kept our black brothers and sisters down. It, I don't even know what the number of how many millions of unborn babies aborted in the womb without an opportunity to live life and to experience. Like, are there some horrific things about the United States of America? So, so if we compare ourselves as a nation against Worse nations, yeah, we're doing great. Liberty and justice, that's awesome. What if we compared ourselves to the kingdom of God? What if we compared ourselves even to our own standards that we say? I would just humbly offer to you, I love America. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I don't necessarily care who wins the presidency or whatever next year. I'm not moving. I'm gonna stay here. I love this nation. But we need to have, as as followers of Jesus, the kind of, open eyes to say, man, there's some really messed up things. And that's not just true about the nation. That's true about every single institution that we interact with. Let me, let me see a quick show of hands. Let me, I sense the blood pressure, everyone rising. Let me, let me make this slightly more comfortable. How many of you like your job? 
Okay, some of you didn't raise your hand very fast. Okay, uh, how many of you would say in your workplace, there are some values and some things that are like really kind of cool and you think are good values? Okay, how many of you would say as you look at your job, man, there's some messed up things about my job. Okay, yeah, all right. I won't email your boss, I promise, okay? I was even thinking about this church. We've got employees of Sound City Bible Church in the room. Plug your ears, guys. Like, the church is an expression of the kingdom of God, but the church is not the kingdom of God. The church is still, in some part, a human institution because it's led by and made up of broken people. So I love our church. I think our church is great. Do we live up to all of our values? You can go on our website and list, you know, read the list of values that we said. I hope and I pray we're, we're moving in that direction, but even Sound City Bible Church, surprise news. If you're new, my apologies, we're not perfect. <sighs> Trying. But it's not there yet. One more year, we'll get there, okay. Every earthly institution is a mixture of good and bad. And so as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, how do we interact with these institutions? Let me give you three thoughts. The first one is this. Citizens of the kingdom should embody the best about any earthly institution. Jesus was found guilty of no sin. We could go to other passages in the gospels where, you know, Jesus paid his taxes, Render under Caesar that which is Caesar's, give to God, which is God's. Hey, there's some overlap, but there's some distinction. And Jesus was overall a good citizen. He made the, the religious leaders mad because of his theological claims. But the Roman government had a really hard time busting him because he didn't break any laws. When you, uh, if you keep reading into the book of Acts, I was listening to a, a podcast this week and they were talking about Paul's, Paul's imprisonments. What's really funny, I I never even noticed this before, but like three or four different times in the book of Acts, Paul has to remind his Roman captors what the Roman laws are. Like Paul's this amazing Roman citizen. Well, didn't you remember that this, that, and the other thing? And you're like, ah, oh, you're right. Okay, like Paul's a really good Roman citizen, even as he's out there flipping the world on its head. And messing with all sorts of stuff in the name of Jesus. Dear Christian, dear follower of Jesus, dear citizen of the kingdom, do you embody what's the best about any of your earthly institutions? I was, when I was volunteering at my kid's school, they have, you know, these certain character traits. The, the, the eagle, it's the Meadowdale eagles, and it's things like, you know, I don't even remember. It was good stuff, you know, like <laughs> compassion and I don't even know. It was all good. It was all fine. Do it, kids. Do it. Embody those values. Maybe you can remember. Maybe one of them is having a good memory. I don't know. It was not mine. I want them to embody those values, but I also know in their elementary school, there's some things that I don't want them to embody because every institution is a mixture of good and bad. Your workplace. Be the best employee of whatever corporation or you know, wherever you work. Be the best you can possibly be, but not in those ways that are contrary to the citizenship of the kingdom. Be the best. Number two, Citizens of the kingdom act as a mirror for the institution to see its flaws. Okay? Ooh, this is the, this is the not fun part of being a follower of Jesus. Here Jesus is standing before Pilate, and, and Pilate is just getting more and more frustrated. What is happening here? And what have you done? And what's going on here? And Pilate says, to him, what is truth? Jesus is acting as a mirror I came to proclaim the truth. 
And you are not acting truly right now. In fact, Pilate is acting about as duplicitously as you can get. He is, he is all over the place. When you are at your work, when you are at your school, when you participate in politics, city, state, national, are you serving as a mirror to show this earthly institution, whatever it might be, where the cracks are? And that means you're going to sometimes confuse and frustrate those people who are in leadership. Number three, citizens of the kingdom don't fit neatly into the categories of earthly institutions. Let, <laughs> um, American politics has become quite binary. I mentioned it a few weeks ago that I read a study that they said Americans are as divided as any point in our history since the Civil War. I should find, it was, a, it, was a, it was an article, I think it was in the New York Times, that we are so politically divided, it's as bad as it was during the time of the Civil War. And everything has got this very polarizing effect. One of the things that you will notice, you don't even have to like immerse yourself in the Bible. All you got to do is just travel internationally a little bit to see that some of the ways that we've polarized ourselves just doesn't make sense. Why does this party do this thing and, and then not do this other thing? And why does this party do this thing? And, and like everything is like, it's like Comcast. It's a packaged bundle deal. You have to take the whole doggone thing. And like, well, I only want that channel. And I want this channel. And I only want, I want to vote for this issue, but not for this other issue. You guys, you should probably at times feel as a citizen of the kingdom that you just don't really know where your home base is. I am not saying that you should not vote. I'm not saying don't be a part of a political party. I'm not saying any of that stuff. Run for office. Engage. Absolutely engage. But just remember the two-party system of America or whatever institution we we interact with, the kingdom kind of supersedes all of that. And it's going to not be neat and tidy. So let me ask you, as, as individuals, as individuals, how are you for the world, but not of it. What areas in your life are you seeking to speak truth? What areas are you seeking to hold back and not participate in? I can't prescribe those things for you. This takes a lot of wisdom. This takes a lot of prayer. This takes a lot of scripture. This takes a lot of community. But you as individuals, what about you as as groups, right? Maybe it's your community group, your small group. Maybe it's your family. Like I mentioned a moment ago, just again, one of the ways that we as a family have tried to, to embody this is to be really involved in our kids' schools. I, uh, I'm not trying to make myself the hero and I'm just offering to you an, an, a way where I've tried to be for the world, but not of it. I want to be in my kids' schools, but not of it. I actually had a conversation with one of the administrators the other day, uh, about, a, about a week and a half, two weeks ago. And he goes, so you're like a pastor, right? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, and he just goes, huh. And I was like, awesome. Like, that's literally what I was going for. <laughs> Like a mixture of intrigue and confusion. And, but, but I also want them to know, like, if they need help cleaning up the gym after a school assembly, I'm there. If they need help sitting with kindergartners, I was better than I made myself out to be. You put me with the kindergartners, man. We're going to have a good time. Okay, so we're just sitting there and we're playing. I mean, we're listening. And What is it that you and your family are invested in? We're for the world, but not of the world. What about for our local church? I love... Um, 
I love some of the ways that we corporately as Sound City Bible Church have, have sought to express engagement with the world. Uh, you might remember a few weeks ago, we had uh, people from our Linwood DCYF uh, foster care office came out here and talked about the, the gift cards and the impact that you all have had. Like, that's awesome. If, if Sound City Bible Church disappeared tomorrow, the local DCYF office would miss us. I love that Pastor Kyle and a team of people came out here to Linwood High School at the beginning of the school year and served lattes and muffins and fruit and just told the teachers, hey, we're so thankful. Thanks for letting us use your space. We're here for you. Do you know that they've called us this year? A handful of times. There have been some tragedies that have happened among the, the, the people, the students of the school. I'm so thankful that they could pick up the phone and call Pastor Kyle or, or email Sound City Bible Church and say, hey, we need some support. We need some help. I love that. Linwood Police Department stopped by our office this last week. And it's not, I know, it's not like, no, no, it was, it was good. It was good. Again, Pastor Kyle, myself, Myung, others have, have tried to build relationship with some of the people over there because uh, they want the church's help dealing with homelessness or opiate addiction. I, I'm, I don't know that we're quite there yet, but I, I'm hoping and praying that if Sound City Bible Church just disappeared, that the Linwood PD would miss us. What about regionally? What if, what, if, what if more and more churches got a spirit of humility, like in John 17, to be one as Jesus and the Father are one and we really partnered together? I don't know. Stuff like the prayer night a couple weeks ago is behind that. Like, what if we really could like love each other and pray together and just see the kingdom of God go out? What if, what if we stopped playing, you know, denominational wars or ignoring each other? And what if we really like put our hearts together and said, hey, okay, you go over there and do this. We're going to go over here and do this. And let's work together and partner together to really see the kingdom of God come in the North Puget Sound as it is in heaven. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. But, last point, and you're all saying, yeah, right. No, I really mean it, okay? Last point, seriously. If we want to be for the world, our eyes must be on Jesus, not the world. It's really easy. You're going to leave here today, and you might turn on your radio you might drive past billboards. You might turn on your TV. You might get into a conversation with somebody. It is really easy to have the majority of your attention and your focus and your emotional energy go into your workplace, go into your kids' schools, go into politics, and you could completely miss the source, the fuel that will enable you to actually be for the world. His name is Jesus. We must, as Pilate said... Behold the man. We must look upon our Savior. We must gaze upon our Savior. And as we begin to transition now into a time of celebrating the Lord's table and singing, I'll read you a quote from Charles Spurgeon that will set us up for this. Let us look at Jesus so that we could be not of the world, but for the world. Charles Spurgeon says, Behold and see. Was there ever sorrow like unto his sorrow that is done unto him? All ye that pass by, draw near and look upon this spectacle of grief. Unique, unparalleled, a wonder to men and angels, a prodigy unmatched. Behold the emperor of woe, who had no equal or rival in his agonies. Gaze upon him, ye mourners, for if there be not consolation in a crucified Christ, there is no joy in earth or heaven. If in the ransom price of his blood, there's, there's not hope, 
Well, you harps of heaven, there's no joy in you. And the right hand of God shall know no pleasures forevermore. We have only to sit more continually at the cross foot to be less troubled with our doubts and woes. If we would live aright, it must be. If we're to, if we're to live and serve and, and be for the world, it must be by the contemplation of his death. And if we would rise to dignity, it must be by considering his humiliation and sorrow. Jesus, would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on you? As we live in the world and we interact with institutions and systems of power and politics and governments and kings and rulers and bosses and all of these things, Jesus, may we remember that you are the King of Kings. You are the Lord of Lords, that you died. You were, you were lifted up, hung on a tree to bear our curse for us that we might boldly go into the world as citizens of the kingdom. Jesus, as we gather at the table now, would you help us to check our allegiances? Would you fixate our eyes upon you, not on all of the other things vying for our attention, but our eyes would be on you. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. As we transition from the sermon to communion, go ahead and get out the communion elements that you got on the way in. And I'll go ahead and read from uh, 1 Corinthians. If you didn't get one, we have two more up here. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. And then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We are all sinners. We're broken people in a very broken world. But Jesus Christ, Son of God and sinless Son of Man, was publicly humiliated and rejected. He was bound and he went through a mock trial. He was scourged and wore a crown of thorns and then he was crucified. He went through all of this in our place. That is the gospel. That is the good news. According to Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation, no record kept of our sins or failures. You know, this leaves us free to remember 
and embrace God's grace and express our appreciation to the one who was rejected and bound and scourged and crucified out of his love for us, his love for you. So we could be in relationship with the Father. And communion is for those who are in relationship with the Father. But if you're not, then today is the day. Now, right now is the time. Don't put it off. Our days are numbered, our days are limited. I think we're all very aware of that now. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In the moment, the band will lead us in singing. But before taking communion, perhaps you need to pray these words to God right now. Perhaps you need to examine yourself, confess and repent, or praise God as you take in the elements, remembering Jesus and his faithfulness to us. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. We praise and adore you. We love you and your faithfulness to us. Fill us with your spirit that we might be those who sit at the foot of the cross remembering Jesus' humiliation, sorrow, and death. Father, we love you and we thank you. And God, it is our honor to be called by your name, by the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.